0: Good morning, it's Monday the 29th of January and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Welcome back from the long weekend and our top stories and themes. Foreign investors are buying Indian debt, selling equity. The rupee is the best performing Asian currency again in January. HDFC Bank needs a series of injections, including of energy and perhaps some brave moves. What does the interim budget hold in store in tax? And the government announces an ambitious rooftop solar scheme. How far can it go?
1: This is a core
0: report with Govindraj Athiraj. The markets wait for more Q3 results. This is the week for the interim budget to be presented on Thursday, February first since the final or real budget will come after a new government is elected and comes into power. Last week's truncated trading, there were two holidays of which one was sudden and three trading days seem to have contributed to a general sense of nervousness, which was not quite the case a few weeks earlier. But then, such are markets. Last week, the BAC benchmark fell by about 982 points or 1.37%, while the Nifty fell about 270 points or 1.24%. The interim budget at this point does not seem to be affecting the fortunes of the stock markets here. More likely, it will be the U.S. federal policies, moves or quarterly earnings back home. The Federal Open Market Committee meeting will be held on January 30th and 31st. So no interest rate cuts are expected right now, but the markets are, as always, watching keenly for signals and a timeline for rate cuts. Though, with the US elections in November, it's quite likely that rate cuts, all of them that is, would kick in much earlier, at least according to some observers on Wall Street. Back here, there are several large companies like Bajaj Finance and Maruti Suzuki and Titan who are yet to announce their results and the markets are only hoping that there are no further surprises like HDFC Bank, on whom we will spend a few moments shortly. Foreign portfolio investors are selling equities and buying debt. Indian debt is appearing more attractive to foreign portfolio investors who sold Indian equities worth about 24,700 crores so far this month, that's January, but bought debt worth about 17,120 crores in the period under review, the PTI reported quoting depository data. Foreign portfolio investors have made net investments of about 24,500 crores in Indian equities this month. That's till January 25th. So there are net investments, but there are also net sales. Bond yields are rising in the United States, and this is one reason attributed by analysts for the selling of equities in markets like India, which obviously means it's happening elsewhere too, including China, although for different reasons. The 10-year bond yield in the United States has fallen from 5% to around 3.8%, is now back at 4.18%, suggesting a Fed rate cut will only come in the second half of the year. Foreign and domestic investors, including in mutual funds or via mutual funds, are booking profits and likely have been doing so for the last month or so, as the markets have been at all-time highs. On the debt side, JP Morgan Chase and Co. in September last year said it will add Indian government bonds to its benchmark Emerging Market Index from June 2024. And this and similar other moves in the bond and debt space is spurring a lot of interest, and obviously as we can see, capital flows as well. Where will the rupee go in 2024? 2023 was actually a good time to predict the rupees movement because actually it didn't move much, except between maybe 82 rupees 50 paise and 84 rupees, and that too on a bad day. Obviously, all of this is quite clear in perfect hindsight, but it does look like 2024 is starting on a similar note. It's already the best performing Asian currency in January so far and has appreciated only about 0.1%, despite the dollar index, which usually kicks things off in the opposite direction, rising 2%. All other Asian currencies depreciated by about one4 to 4% in this period, that is the month of January, but the rupee has been strong. As we've been reporting earlier, the last year saw the least volatility witnessed in nearly three decades, thanks to mostly the Reserve Bank of India's timely intervention in the foreign exchange market, both in terms of selling and buying dollars. The rupee was quoting at 83 rupees and 11 paise per US dollar on Friday. Let's see where it goes this week. Oil rises sharply as risks in the Red Sea spike. Friday saw a missile attack on a tanker taking Russian fuel through the Gulf of Aden. This attack has changed threat perceptions in the Red Sea and jacked up oil prices by almost $2 to about $83.55 currently, which is edging towards $84. According to a Bloomberg News report, because much of the oil flowing through the Red Sea and Suez Canal came from Russia, and so the theory went it was safe. The Houthis themselves signaled Russian ships had nothing to fear because Moscow is an ally of their sponsor Iran. Oil tankers generally had been largely spared. But Friday's attack made one thing clear, which is that these assurances that came from the Houthis don't extend to a ship's cargo if the vessel itself has even a tenuous link to the US, UK or Israel. Houthis had earlier said that they were targeting Israeli assets because of the war in Gaza and then went on to attack US and UK vessels after those countries launched airstrikes in Yemen, according to Bloomberg. Now, all of this means that more Russian crude oil and fuel that's been coming through the Red Sea to reach customers in Asia could be at risk. And the fact is that Russia's crude output does matter to the global market, despite the sanctions imposed on it by the Western countries. It's not clear, of course, how long the war will last, and India itself has been responding with armed naval support quite regularly to attacks in the Red Sea. Not surprisingly, there is more discussion now on oil independence and independence from oil. More on that shortly. This was the energy segment on the core report and was supported by India Energy Week. And for more details on the India Energy Week, log on to www.IndiaEnergyWeek.com, which starts on the 6th of February. HDFC Bank, injecting fresh life. For many market veterans in Mumbai that I've met, HDFC Bank is the gold standard of stocks. For the only reason that it's delivered strong growth over time and the stock market has kept pace. Even now, the bet is that HDFC bank will emerge from the drubbing that its stock price has received and from the crisis of performance confidence and deliver the goods once again. Which is of course possible. And before I start, it's not HDFC's performance in the third quarter of the current year of October to December quarter that it was so bad that the bank is on a stretcher on the way to the ICU. Far from it, HDFC bank's net profit rose 33% to about 16,000 crores in the October to December quarter and its net interest income, the figure that's in the middle of much contention came in at about 28,000 crores in that same quarter, growing 24% year on year. Now let's park that for a moment, HTFC has done better in the past than many other banks because it focused on smaller loans and individuals and not so much on companies something that founder CEO Aditya Puri would take much pride in. Individuals are more remunerative because you can charge more and collect over time, particularly if it's a secured asset, like a car. Thanks to which, as MC Govardarangan of the Economic Times points out, in an interesting piece titled, HTFC Bank's era of premium valuations is over, that HDFC Bank for years reported a net interest margin, or NIM, the sole profitability metric for a lender of more than 4%. Now, that was the best in the industry by a country mile, he says. Peers barely managed 2%, sometimes even less. Rangan also points out that the combination of retail lending and low-cost deposits when the industry was chasing corporates and wholesale funding aided HDFC Bank's industry beating growth and profitability that in turn led to premium valuations of more than four times its book value. Whereas today it's trading at about two times its price to book for the fiscal year ahead, the lowest in a decade thanks to a 15% fall in its stock price after the December quarter earnings or the drubbing that I referred to earlier. Now The question of course is what changed so dramatically between the second and third quarter or September or December. Most of its book actually is in the same shape that it was then. What obviously changed is the realization that HDFC needed much faster deposit growth to outpace loan growth so as not to rely on wholesale borrowings, as Avinash Gorakshakar, veteran analyst, pointed out in the core report two weeks ago. And of course, people seem to have taken a fresh look at the numbers following that earlier merger with HDFC and the cost of funds that HDFC had and what it all added up to now with the margins that the new or merged entity could earn. So there is a lot more number crunching and many analysts, by the way, are still calling for strong growth for HDFC, including in mortgages, the business that HDFC ran before merger. But I don't want to go deeper into the numbers because the larger point is not about managing the balance sheet, at least not here. It's about the new, new thing and that HDFC is not in a position to build linear as it has been for the last 25 years and more if you include the mortgage business. For one, all companies who reported stellar performances for, let's say, 25 years may not necessarily do a repeat in the next 25, a key reason being markets mature and circumstances change, put very simply. So let's look at companies with steady businesses and flows for similar periods. You could include, let's say, Reliance Industries, many of the Tata Group companies and Birla companies, among others, and even IT companies like Infosys, Wipro, HCL, and so on. And then the multinationals in consumer products and engineering. Among the non-multinationals, Reliance, for example, is turning its business upside down. The Birlas, too, are diversifying furiously, either by acquisitions or otherwise. And the Tata Group companies are doing all of the above and injecting fresh ideas and blood at the very top. And that's something that I want to focus on today. The one thing that's common to all of these company examples, and there are surely many more, including in the multinational universe, because there the churn is more steady in terms of fresh blood coming in. Even companies like Reliance are seeing the next generation coming in with fresh blood, as well as new managers and business heads in areas like retail, telecom, and finance. HDFC Bank ran under Aditya Puri from 1994 to 2020, or two and a half decades. You cannot discount his presence or leadership in the bank's growth. Now, remember, this is also the phase that private banks came into their own. Now, there is no doubt that the integrity and high governance standards of the HDFC companies have helped, as it has in the case of the IT companies or the IT services companies in Bangalore. As a contrast, ICICI Bank, for example, cannot claim a similarly consistent record and the bank is only back on an even keel now under its current leadership. So even today, there is nothing to say from the numbers alone that an HDFC bank cannot pull out a rabbit from the hat. Well, it might. But the point is that there could be a bias at play, including in the commentary of many analysts who are putting a buy on HDFC. For example, not many are asking or saying at least publicly the obvious question of point. What if companies like HTFC have run out of steam for now, which is to provide the kind of growth that we've all seen or become accustomed to? Is there a case for a major rejig in businesses and business incomes, which is entirely possible, of course, but the signs of which are not very apparent to outsiders, at least at this time? Maybe those who are betting on HTFC feel that they're trusting its implicit capability in fighting its way out of tough corners and that banking, at the end of the day, is a simple business that does not need too much tinkering and experimentation. And that's true as well, though it could be argued that the markets are clearly expecting more. There is an important difference between banks and IT companies. Banking as a business, service, and need will continue to grow because the domestic market has a long way to go. Now, you cannot say the same in Indian IT because the current model of offshore services is driven by the fate of their clients in the form of companies like banks and retail giants, either in the United States or Europe. And then there are new shape shifts happening like artificial intelligence. Their growth, sticking to IT companies, and remember we are talking of growth and not survival, at least not yet, will come only if they do some major rejigs, like get into semiconductor manufacture, which, by the way, HCL Computers is talking about. And this is something that the core report has consistently argued as well, that should be a way forward for IT companies. So, where do you stand on HDFC Bank? Do you feel it is injecting or preparing to inject the kind of energy and drive that got it off the ground in 1994? Is that the position it is in today? I would argue that many companies feel that this is a time when ground-up reinvention is called for, whatever the business is, because that's the manner in which change is taking place. Is HDFC in the same point? Will it reach the same point? And if so, how will it respond? Well, the answer, if not the story... Is for another episode. What will the interim budget bring? The interim budget will be announced on February 1st by Union Finance Minister Nimla Sita Raman. Expectations from interim budgets are low because the government of the day will fight elections in a few months' time and the new government is expected to and come back with a proper budget with the mandate of the people in July. Be that as it may, there are many aspects industry overall is looking forward to, particularly in the area of taxes, which are not so revenue-linked and more procedural. There are big revenue asks as well, but that presumably can wait. Overall, tax collections have been strong, tax-to-GDP ratio is the highest, and thus expectations are running high. I reached out to Ajay Roti, founder and CEO of Bangalore-based tax consulting firm Tax Compass, and I began by asking him first to set our expectations in order on what to look out for from the interim budget and then down to some specifics.
1: In terms of, you know, what we can expect, this is not going to be a full-fledged budget, which all of us know by now. This is sort of, in a sense, the government gets its approval for spending monies for the period that they are there, for the remaining period that they are there. A full budget, I would expect, would be sometime in July, which is really the timeline and which is what happened in 2019. The Feb 19 one was an interim budget and then we had a full-fledged budget in July. What can we expect on the 1st? I don't think it's going to be a sort of no-show with nothing coming out of it. There are a few things which people are expecting and the government could come up with certain clarifications, some changes, minor tinkering that they have to do more on the procedural and administrative side, not really so much on the tax structure, rates, etc., The other expectation that is there is this whole manufacturing beneficial rate that is there, whether that will be extended for another year or so, given the push. There are a few other things like some tax incentives, benefits given for EVs in income tax on borrowing for EVs and things like that, with FAME2 being done, will they extend those? Some of those smaller things I would expect could come through. There could be a few things on, like I said, administratively extend the time provided for filing of returns and things like that. Nothing too major on the revenue side or taxation side. The other expectation of rationalization of capital gains, et cetera, we may have to wait until July because those will have revenue implications and they may not want to do it in an interim budget and may want to wait for the full budget.
0: Right. So let me pick on one or two quick ones, Ajay. So the 15% on manufacturing, new manufacturing, is I'm assuming is also a response to, let's say, the foreign direct investment that we've seen and so on. So is that linked?
1: Yes, it is. To that and the PLI that you know the government has been pushing. Now, somewhere they are linked because you want to give some fiscal incentives to push more companies coming in. And therefore, they may want to extend that window because you know when it came in it was before covid and then covid happened and therefore they didn't get that lead time to set up these plants and some of what the government is expecting going can't happen within a few months because if you want substantial manufacturing to move you need 18-24 month for greenfield plants to come up because this is available only for new manufacturing units so therefore extending it by a year or so may make sense
0: yeah, and it sounds quite logical, because as you said, COVID would have knocked off at least two or three years going in and coming out of it. The other thing is buyback tax. That's something is which I saw in the CII wish list as well. Now, is that something that's again in the ambit of an interim budget?
1: May not be, but that's a very interesting point, because I'll tell you buyback tax was brought in when dividend distribution tax was there. And if you remember at that point, the dividends were taxable in the hands of the company and not the shareholder. So, some of the companies were using buyback to repatriate those profits or move the profits which otherwise would have been distributed as dividends and therefore getting treaty benefits and then the government actually mentioned that to say that to take out that they will bring in a buyback distribution tax which will be paid by the company which is doing the buyback. Now, with dividend distribution tax gone and the dividends being taxable in the hands of the shareholder, there is an expectation that the buyback distribution tax will also go and logically it needs to. Whether it will happen now or they'll have to do it in July is we'll have to wait and see. But I would think that will be in July and not now or whenever the final budget happens.
0: Right. So we are at the highest level of tax to GDP right now. So from that point of view, things are looking good. So when things are looking good, obviously, one expects more generosity from the government in this case. Is there anything in a very broad sense that you're looking out for or would like to see? See, one is
1: the point that you made on tax to GDP. The other thing is the collections have been very good, much better than what even the government has been expecting, both on direct taxes and indirect taxes. So that buoyancy is there. So if the government or the FM wanted to dole out a few things and in fact announce a few schemes, this was a very good time. And it could have been done. But unfortunately, in an interim budget or a on account, they will not be able to do much. So I don't think there'll be too much happening on that. Again. You know, whether they do it now or after the new government comes, there is very little that we lose. And that situation is not going to change. I think some of this will happen later when the full budget happens and not
0: on first. Anything on individual taxation, Ajay? Anything that has stood out for you or you feel merits quick correction?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple of things which I think they could do. And they showed in my view. One is this whole TCS that was brought in, especially for people who are traveling abroad and there's a TCS because they use the debit cards and things like that whether the employers can give credit for that TCS that's done or not is sort of open companies are taking different views you know it would be good if the government actually clarifies and clarifies in favor of the individual taxpayers to say any TCS credits can actually be considered by the employer while deducting tax on salary that sort of adjust the cash flow for the employees which would be good. Second, when they brought in, they introduced certain changes on taxation of PF and other retirals, made some of it taxable. There's some doubts that are there, which account, how do you compute, how TDS applies and things like that. So it will also be good if they clarify some of those things. And some of these coming into the statute is better than releasing FAQs or instructions and circulars. So I think there are a few corrective things that can be done on individual taxation. It would be nice if they consider some of those.
0: Right Ajay thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you Govind. Pleasure.
0: India takes a big bet on rooftop solar. Last week India's prime minister Narendra Modi announced the Pradhan Mantri Suryodaya Yojana PMSY promising the installation of rooftop solar systems in 10 million homes mostly for the economically disadvantaged. Coincidentally, over the weekend, I saw how a 3.5 kilowatt-hour solar power unit installed on the roof of an independent house helped a family member in Bangalore run a refrigerator, washing machine, lights and fans as well as geysers for water heating. He pointed out that he for example couldn't run the microwave and the geyser at the same time but that was fine. More than anything else, solar power was a good hedge against power cuts in his area. And finally, he had opted for net metering which means the power generated by the solar rooftop plant is first allowed for self-consumption and the excess energy is pumped back into the grid, for which he got a credit. Well-known business journalist and columnist Shankar Raya pointed out in an article on Sunday in the New Indian Express that most of India is blessed with 300 days of sunshine and the government's announcement would propel capacity in photovoltaic cells as well as a reduction in costs. More importantly, it is an opportunity he says, to review policy design to expand it beyond these 10 million households. I reached out to Shankar Ayer and I began by asking him what India had achieved so far in the area of non-conventional and decentralized energy production before moving on to how it could be scaled up.
2: Well, there are two parallel programs running. One is the PM Kusum program, which is aimed at replacing diesel and other power pump sets in the agricultural domain. And that program has done some progress, some 20 lakh farmers, they claim, have been beneficiaries of this program. It's a very important program in the sense that when you give free power to farmers, the tendency is to not supply it consistently by their state electricity board, and then the farmers tend to overmine the water, and that leads to soil salinity, all kinds of issues. So... I have been personally writing about this, that there needs to be a need to switch them from you know traditional conventional leadership part to solar so they have control, they have agency over there when they need it, how they need it and all. So that's happening in one area. The other area is this idea of rooftop solar, which has gained more in the MSME sector and then in some residential areas. But it is woefully behind target They targeted for 40 gigawatts by 2022. And now they have achieved 11 gigawatts, even accounting for the pandemic and everything. And this is really bad. And the reason why the adoption is so poor is because of the way this policy is designed. So you have to, typically in government, you can't get past the gate without filling seven forms. And so, you know, every time you register and then there is the Aadhaar thing and the OTP and everything. The, The reason why it's lagging behind has got funding problems. It's got facilitation problem. And I don't think that the mindset has changed very much across government on how services are to be delivered. Got it.
0: Okay. So let me come to the actual energy saving potential of this project. How are you seeing that? Because I'm guessing that the savings when at an individual level in any household or at least these 10 million households, as in when it gets done, the empowerment potential is pretty high, isn't it?
2: Well, let's look at it this way. You have an economy that's growing at roughly 7, 7.5% over the last three years. And there is a by has asset that will grow at 7% next year, which means that it requires X amount of energy. Now, that X amount of energy is coming through coal and imported crude. We import 86% of our crude requirements. 49% of the power projects, power generation in India is coal-fired, which gives rise to all kinds of issues. We have nearly 2 million people are dying every year because of pollution-related cardiovascular and other ailments. So the case is very simple for solar. I think this data says it all. The reason why India should pursue it is because it will bring down the import dependency. It will bring down the dependency on coal. You could create a system that is off-grid. This will encourage storage. So all pieces are possible in this. I mean, you know, just the mega solar thing, It's supposed to be, India is supposed to have some 740 gigawatt potential. If you look at rooftop solar, I mean, the estimates range from 600 gigawatts to 1,000 gigawatts. And it's like a no-brainer. You have a country where large parts of the country gets 300 days of sunlight or even 260, 275 days of sunlight. At least some part of your consumption, if not all, can be fulfilled by solar. And that will bring down in costs at the individual level, at the institutional level, at the economy level. And the capital cost can be subsidized. I mean, Europe is doing it. The US is doing it through the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And subsidy is no longer a bad word in international economics, you know. So they could do this. The problem going, you asked me earlier also, why it's not sort of moving forward is just the lack of simplicity in this. Imagine you set up a solar in your house. You should be able to get a guy to install it. And the same guy should be able to certify that this is fine and plug it in. So as simple as us installing an inverter in the house, I mean, how big a deal is that? So if the inverter is connected to solar, just imagine that's one step. If the solar power excess is weighed up to the straight to board, that's the second step. I'm sure with all our IITs and IAMs who are producing papers and studies and CEOs for the world, surely they can get this part of the story, right? I mean, this is a country that produces more SAP specialists than any part of the world. And so I'm struck that
0: we are not leveraging this. Right. Shankar, we've run out of time totally. Thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure. That's it for me for today. Have a great week ahead. That was the Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at and thank you once again for listening.